We're in business to save the planet, and we use making clothes to do that. For over 45 years, Patagonia has committed to taking responsibility for their impact on the environment by pioneering sustainable practices and inspiring other businesses to do the same. The cure for depression is action. Every one of us has to step up and do what you can according to what your resources are. Patagonia, in business to save our home planet. Join us. You're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries, a production of Duct Tape Thin Beer, with additional support from Kuat Racks, Because You Love Your Bike, and Kicking Horse Coffee. Wake up and kick ass. Hey, Fitz. Hey, what's up, Cordelia? Fitz, has there ever been a time in your life that your experience in the outdoors helped you get through a non-outdoors-related situation? Uh... All the time. I, it's sort of almost, that's a hard question for me to answer just because it is, it's so rooted in how I interact with the world. Um, mm-hmm. But how about for you? Yeah, oh, totally. Uh, right after high school, I moved to Patagonia for about five months and I did a lot of solo backpacking there. And I think at that age, those travels were just some of the most formative times of my life, like having to navigate a foreign country by myself for the first time and really big mountains. It just taught me who I was on a level I'd never really gotten to before. Like the crazy weather and the Chileans dropping all of their consonants in a language that I really only half spoke at that time. And at one point my credit card stopped working and I literally sang for food in El Chalten. There were just so many curveballs every day and I, I learned to take them in stride and just kind of adapt and trust that I had what it took to find my way, even with all the unknowns. I feel like those days in Patagonia have helped me get through a ton of other situations in life that are stressful, like relationships sometimes or injuries, quarantine, because I know that I can go back to those memories and just sort of remind myself that what seemed like the most stressful moments at that time were actually some of the greatest experiences in growth and self-knowing and that it helps me keep things in perspective. Yeah, it's. I mean, that's totally really interesting because um stressful things do happen in life right like like hard Mm -hmm. tough situations go down um sometimes in the mountains you know but a lot of times more it's just in in the day-to-day right and i do think that those early outdoor memories they are they're pretty vital you know that that Mm -hmm. scrappiness that that you talked about there and like the on the fly decision making um Mm -hmm. the intensity of the moment the turbulence like that's something that really happens in those early years right i think and and it builds something in all of us and i I had a lot of similar memories like when i was living on the road and i think you know it really shaped the way i think and it you know today it's funny because like you know my experiences going outdoors are pretty damn calm it's not because i'm just like sitting on a park bench or something like that it's just that it's it's that even when I'm doing something challenging to me where something's not going as it planned, it just it just feels like fun now. You know, like being being in the mountains just feels like fun. Like do you mean the do you mean the curveballs are part of the fun? Well, okay, so if we're gonna use the baseball analogy, um, which you probably didn't know this quickly, but um all I ever wanted to do when I was a kid was to be a professional baseball player. It did not work out. Oh my god. Newsflash. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> but yeah, so so when you're playing baseball, when you're up to bat, right, you you're gonna see a variety of pitches. You're gonna see fastballs, sliders, curveballs, and that variation is just part of the game. And if you don't love that, if you don't like like that puzzle, um, you're not gonna love baseball. And truthfully, if you can't learn to hit a curveball, you're not going to really make it too far in the sport either. You know, that's the truth mm-hmm. of it. And, you know, if I have to be honest my about my life, my day-to-day is much more complicated, unexpected, um, and difficult than my experiences outdoors. Like, bar none. It's just, that's the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, being outside to me is the simple part. And I guess, you know, the irony is that the the mechanisms the tactics, the little mantras I've created for myself to navigate the hard parts of, of my life, you know, or the health of my family, um, you know, the troubles with business, um, all that. I developed um, them through my time in the mountains. What's one of those mantras? Wanting something to be different won't make it different. It won't make it change, you know, that, and to me, that's a reminder that I either need to like embrace or accept the situation I'm in or I've got to make a change. And the space in between those two options is just like, it's worthless. It's, it's like untenable. And um, I learned that from my time in the mountains and I carry that with me all the time. And I remember it when I need to, and especially when I'm not confident in the outcome of a situation. Today, Cordelia, you're going to introduce us to an incredible person, Rachel James. Yes, and the story is dear to my heart because I met Rachel when I was in Patagonia, and I remember looking up to her so much as a role model. When I was 18, she just seemed so grounded and confident, and I had no idea what she was going through at the time. Her life took a big turn in her 20s, and she had to make a lot of difficult decisions and she leaned on her time in the mountains to help her navigate. They were a little handhold of confidence in an otherwise pretty screwed up situation. When the world seems to be closing in on you, where do you draw strength from? I'm Fitz Cahal. And I'm Cordelia Zars. You're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. In 2002, when Rachel James was in her early 20s, she woke up and drove with her boyfriend, Tori, to ski Explorer's Peak near Anchorage, Alaska. And we booted up a couple thousand feet. It got quite steep in the couloir at times. And as we skinned up, there were some loose slides that came down and covered our tracks after we'd gone up. You know, we were definitely out there. The day was short. It was our first time doing anything like that. I actually was also in three pins. And we sat on top of that peak and I was terrified. I remember kind of having that feeling like diarrhea belly, like just, oh my God, I can't believe I'm doing this. We looked down our our line that we intended to ski and the day was coming to a close. It was starting to get dark and I was so scared, but so happy. Rachel and Tori dropped down the line, floating into the perfect powder and ending on an enormous glacier that took them back to their car, where they had started hours earlier. For Rachel, that day kicked off something big. At that time in her life, 
skiing became everything. I was absolutely addicted to the endorphins of the uphill, which I know sounds crazy. I mean, it wasn't all about the downhill for me. It was really the whole experience. I loved skinning up the hill hard. I was 99% of the time with boys in the prime of their life, <laughs> men, boys, whatever they were, they were skinning really hard. And it was a great challenge for me. I loved going uphill and trying to keep up. When they'd get to the top, they'd stop, scout the line, and stagger dropping in. Literally shaking, shaking with excitement, like a dog about to chase a frisbee. It's just like that moment of watching your partners go through the powder or make jump turns or execute anywhere from a three to 15 minute dance down the mountain is something that just fulfilled me so deeply. Rachel grew up in Palmer, Alaska, and went to the University of Montana for college. During college, she got involved with Knowles, the National Outdoor Leadership School, and became an instructor when she was 19. Between school semesters, she led mountaineering courses in Alaska, Canada, and Patagonia. Her time with Knowles in college kicked off a love affair with the mountains. When she graduated, she moved back to Alaska and worked in a gear shop until she found a full-time job in environmental policy. She became a shameless dirtbag, living out of a treehouse in Girdwood, Alaska, and skiing deep into the Chugach Mountains after work and on the weekends. To train for skiing, she started mountain running. My boyfriend at the time had run a lot, and he said, you need to do 10,000 vertical feet a week. And that was about it. Like, <laughs> it was pretty simple. And I was working full-time in Anchorage. But no matter what, I'd stop off the side of the road and run up 3,000 feet. And then I got pretty good pretty quick. <laughs> She'd always been outdoorsy, but in those first years out of college, she discovered a personal connection with her body and the mountains that she'd never felt before. I would just hit this euphoric state. It was just me and the mountain. I'm sure part of it was adrenaline, but I would go so long that I think I'd lost the sense I was like a, a little runner in the mountains. It was definitely a time that I was... I had a lot of confidence and was pushing myself hard, whether it was my endurance or my courage or my stamina, my strength, my own psyche really was actually what was getting pushed a lot. Just how far could I go? How hard could I go? And it was pretty addicting. I, for me, the, the colder and the more barren, the better. Rachel wanted running to help her prepare to explore more remote ranges in the state. Coming off a ski expedition up Denali in the spring of 2003, she signed up for the Bird Ridge Race on a whim, a popular 3,400-foot hill climb outside of Anchorage. Out of 50 racers, Rachel placed fifth. I thought, oh my gosh, I might be kind of good at this. Next, she signed up for Mount Marathon, an infamous 5K race straight up 3,000 feet and then straight back down. It's the second oldest foot race in the country, behind the Boston Marathon. The slope averages 34 degrees. It draws upwards of 10,000 spectators and several hundred participants each year. And I had never actually been up the mountain before, which is not a good idea. Like It's kind of a technical race, but I just went for it. And I just remember from the very start going as hard as I could. Rachel set a goal to finish top 50. But after 57 grueling minutes on the mountain, she crossed the finish line in third place, less than a minute behind the Olympic Nordic skier Keegan Rendall. 
Her top three finish in the Mount Marathon race made her realize her potential as an athlete and motivated her to train for big races and mountain runs for years to come. But still, Rachel and her friends explored the mountains, not for the competition or the acclaim, but because that's what they loved doing. They'd head out on long overnight ski missions or mountain traverses, like ski kiting across the 100-mile Harding Icefield or ridge running across 30 rugged miles in the Talkeetna Mountains. They explored the Kenai Peninsula and the Chugach Range. No cell phones, no GPS. They'd just invent their routes looking at maps and bushwhack their way through the hills. The goal? To cover as much ground as possible between dawn and dusk. We weren't running in the who's who circles for sure. We were kind of these covert badasses that were pretty low budget. <laughs> like my gear was really pretty dorky. Rachel had been shy her whole life, and her connection with outdoor sports, it was more personal than social. It was very quiet and very tied to my immediate surroundings. You know, the, the rock of the Chugach, the, the funny lichen that you spot when you're skinning up a mountain with the rock sticking out, the ravens, the, the surprise of some sheep tracks, the sounds, the smells, and the spring when the snow starts to melt. It was a very personal space. That time is the way that I grounded in my body, in the mountains, and with that very crisp connection with pushing that edge in that way. For years, Rachel developed this connection with her body and the outdoors. She bought a cabin in the mountains outside of Valdez and took things a month at a time, apart from planning her next ski adventure or mountain traverse. I imagine the adventures would just continue. I imagine just keep going, you know, just keep pushing it further, going bigger. In the summer of 2006, a trip to climb Cho Uyo in the Himalayas fell through. Scrambling to fill the void, Rachel signed onto a five-week horsepacking trip in Patagonia with her friend Nancy. I'd never felt so included and warm anywhere, ever. So here's this landscape that was just breathtaking. And then there's a new dimension to me, and that's the people. Having struggled with social anxiety since she was little, Rachel had gotten used to running into the mountains as a way to get away from people— to connect back to that space inside herself that was sacred and private. But in Patagonia, she felt welcome in a way she'd never felt before. She stopped feeling like she needed to run away. And a lot of that social anxiety and uh, shyness went away. The warmth of Patagonian culture, along with its wild landscape, completely captured Rachel's imagination. As she returned to Alaska and that anxiety began to creep back in, she dreamed about returning. And then in the spring, she met Mauricio at a Knowles party in Palmer. Mauricio was from Patagonia. Young and strong and handsome, and he loved to dance. He was very tender and different than the dirty dirtbag mountain boys I'd been hanging out with, <laughs> you know? Like, he would get dressed up and go on a date, and he was very complimentary of me and how I looked, and kind of unusual because I was just so used to, like, I was the tomboy that tagged along and treated kind of like a sister I felt pretty. Like, I never really felt pretty with the dirtbag type boyfriends. <laughs> I just was like, a, we could do stuff together in the mountains. At that moment, parts of Rachel's life felt fulfilling. She worked with communities in remote Alaska negatively affected by oil and gas development. She competed in the top tier of runners in the state. She continued to ski deep into the mountains. But also was looking for something else, something a little more deeper. 
The connection to community she felt in Patagonia, it tugged at her. Her job had grown stressful, and a series of tragic events hit her community. Accidents in the mountains, one of her friends was seriously injured in a shooting, and another friend died from cancer. She felt tired, strung out, and lonely. And it kind of was this catalyst to like looking around, like, maybe I want to leave here and make a life down there. (laughs) Which a lot of people were surprised about. They're just like, what are you doing? Rachel quit her job in Alaska, packed a few duffels, and boarded a flight to the Southern Hemisphere. I'm going to completely mix it up and go on this grand adventure with this kind of exotic gaucho dude and (laughs) just see what happens. My memory was a little bit of a tickle of like, I hope I can come back if I need to. She and Mauricio lived together in Coyhaique, Patagonia, and worked seasonal Knowles courses between Chile and Wyoming, trading hemisphere summers. And I just remember that whole time, there was this little gut feeling of like, this is a pretty big thing. I hope I'm thinking through it. Pulling those all those plugs on community and my backcountry skiing, running, all of it, poof. She and Mauricio grew closer. Rachel picked up Spanish and settled into a groove. After a few seasons in the field, Mauricio became the assistant director of Knowles Patagonia, and Rachel became the program supervisor. She kept running when she could, but not like before. She'd go for a few miles around the Knowles Campo, but she didn't want to stick out as the gringa who preferred running alone to making friends. I just remember like sitting <laughs> and eating, a lot of sitting and eating, and like I really want to be out exploring and running, and <laughs> but I'm trying to feel what it's like to be completely immersed in this culture. After dating for three years, Mauricio proposed to Rachel in the spring of 2010, and they set the wedding for January of the next year. But as they spent less time in the field together or apart on separate trips, their relationship began to change. And I felt myself being expected to inhabit that more traditional woman role, and that is when I think those started to be the dark times for me. Despite feeling shifts in their relationship, Rachel wrote them off as cultural differences and tried to stay excited about the wedding. When January came around, friends and family flew to Patagonia to watch Rachel get married. The mood stayed festive, despite the fact that Rachel was sick throughout the whole wedding weekend. Vomiting, sweaty, achy. After a few weeks, she suspected maybe something was up beyond the flu. She went to the store and bought a pregnancy test. I consciously did it in the middle of a very busy workday because I knew it couldn't be true. I went in the bathroom in the middle of a pretty demanding workday and took it and it was positive and I shoved it in my pocket and I kept going. She finished her workday and tried not to think about the test. That afternoon, she went horseback riding with a couple of friends. It was like a little glowing, like almost like Gollum's ring and Bilbo's pocket. (laughs) It's like there's this thing in my pocket. I need to stop and slow down and give myself the space to deal with it, but I'm not. I'm just I'm just charging, right? Like I'm literally like running horses. (laughs) Rachel had vaguely thought about having a family one day in the future, but not anytime soon. And despite being freshly married, her relationship felt rocky. So discovering she was pregnant was not a happy thing for her. But it was for Mauricio. Patagonian culture dotes on babies. Her Chilean friends started thinking of names, and one older gaucho gave her a handmade crib. It was like going over a waterfall that I didn't even know was coming my way. There was so much 
a happiness that I couldn't relate to. It felt, well, what, how do I feel? Like, let's just slow down for a minute. And I was chalking up to just pre-mom jitters. Like, well, maybe everyone goes through this. It wasn't so much my lack of confidence in my ability to raise a child or know what to do. Uh, it was more about something deep and ugly and, and terrifying, scarier than any mountain or slope. It was uh, a very dark, deep feeling and fear. As her belly grew, Rachel buried herself in work, avoiding the space inside herself that held the deeper questions she didn't want to answer. She continued her short runs until she blew her hip joint out, something that can happen as women's joints loosen during pregnancy. And then she realized she needed to find a different rhythm. She flew back to visit family in Alaska in May for a change of scene. After her injury, the most she could walk was about a mile. My world was so tiny. So I was looking up at all these mountains I ran and climbed and skied in. Walking around the fields, I used to run my horse in and at, at a crawling pace, so slow. I remember very vividly just touching the grass and trying to breathe and trying to just relax into this new shell, like this kind of more round, roly-poly shell that didn't need to be strong. It didn't need to be performing. You know, it was a softer, squishier, at times frustrating body to inhabit, but I knew it was purpose-oriented. So I remember it took a while, but relaxing into it. Rachel returned to Patagonia after a few weeks. She and Mauricio had bought property earlier that year and started to build a house close to the Knowles Campo, and she hunkered down there in the winter months. The house didn't have all its doors yet, and Rachel felt cold a lot. She and her husband began to grow distant, physically and emotionally. One morning in July, Rachel woke up with swollen and itchy palms. She called her mom, who told her to go to the hospital right away. Doctors discovered that she had developed a rare condition called HELP syndrome, a disease associated with pregnancy. A third of women with the syndrome die during childbirth because of low platelet count, which means the mother's blood won't clot after birth and she bleeds to death. Rachel's husband helped her get to the doctor for her regular checkups, but they didn't communicate much at home. As her baby's due date neared, Rachel tried to steady herself around her own sense of strength. On September 12th, at 32 weeks pregnant, Rachel checked into the hospital in Koyaike. The doctors determined that based on her platelet count, her body was no longer a safe place for the baby to grow. They prepared the operating room for a C-section. And I just remember like, when they're like, hold still, we're gonna put the needle in you. And I'm like, okay, this is the moment I've kind of been training for maybe, I don't know, just super calm and strong and just completely self-sufficient. After the break, Rachel's story continues. Support for the diaries comes from the good people at Patagonia. They've just re-released their award-winning film, Damn Nation. The documentary explores the shift in perspective from viewing big dams as engineering wonders towards the growing awareness that our future is closely tied to the health of our rivers. Directors Ben Knight and Travis Rummel deliver a thought-provoking film 
It's awesome and funny. Kaylee is my favorite part of it. Watch Damnation for free on Patagonia's YouTube channel or at patagonia.com slash films. Enjoy. Additional support for the diaries comes from Kicking Horse Coffee. Their founders dreamed of waking up the world with 100% organic, 100% fair trade coffee. So they roasted small batches of beans in their garage and hand-delivered coffee from the back of a station wagon. 20 years later, the garage is a little bit bigger and there's a lot more beans, but Kicking Horse Coffee remains committed to the same good values. Dream, then do. Find it at Amazon or kickinghorsecoffee.com. And support comes from Kuat Racks, who have been with us for over a decade. Kuat began as an idea for a better way to transport bikes in 2008 and has evolved into a thriving company that creates high-end and awesomely engineered hitch racks, roof racks, and accessories that push the envelope of innovation. Kuat, because you love your bike. The doctors numbed Rachel from the arms down and worked from behind a screen. I need to really dig deep for this one, and I need to just ride this out and focus on myself. Rachel entered a complete state of focus. She'd done the research on her disease and knew there was a good chance these could be the last minutes of her life. She thought about Alaska, the smell of melting snow, the lichen poking out on the rocks, the ravens. While she laid face up on the operating table, she returned to the solace of her mountains. I remember just closing my eyes and thinking like I can always go further than I ever thought I could with a lot of things in life. I think just stay calm and that everything will be okay one way or another. Like if my baby dies, I'm going to be okay. If this is the end for me, like there's nothing I can do about it except be calm. It just took everything to not let myself fall apart. I was just like, this is my moment. I might die. After a little over an hour, Rachel heard a screaming baby. They brought him out for her to see. I couldn't hold him. He was just laying on my back, very vulnerable. Half of my belly was open from the surgery. And so I just looked at him, and I don't even remember what I said or did, but then they scuttled him away. They sewed her back up and rolled her into a hallway so that she could start to come to by herself. That was horrible. It's horrible to be alone. I still was in this state of, like, don't let my guard down. Because in my mind, I was still fighting for my life in ways I wasn't even sure how. After an hour, doctors reassured Rachel she was going to be okay. They brought her the baby, whom she had named Augustine, after her favorite volcano in Alaska, and she cradled him for the first time. After four days, Rachel and her baby were discharged from the hospital. As Rachel recovered, she still endured the pain from childbirth and surgery. But I would have those quiet moments and actually start to enjoy the, the nursing and start to like metacognate that was my little baby. <laughs> It was really wild. In the months after Augustine's birth, Rachel slowly recovered her physical strength. She couldn't walk more than a few hundred feet. 
but the scope of her world expanded in a different dimension as she watched her baby grow and felt their bond deepen. She leaned into the tender feelings of motherhood that developed week by week, even as the loneliness within her relationship grew. For months, she barely got outside. The power in her body she'd cultivated for years all but faded away. Memories of those long runs, the skis, and mountain races seemed almost like another person's in another life. For the first year of Augustine's life, Rachel just focused on surviving and didn't think far beyond the daily caring of her child. But after a year, she knew she needed to change her situation. She told her husband she was leaving. You know, we had a big showdown and I remember packing and just being really matter of fact about it. And he didn't try and stop me. Rachel stuffed clothes in a few duffels, bought a flight to Flagstaff, Arizona, where her parents were living, and left Patagonia with Augustine in January of 2013. After spending some time with her parents, getting her feet under her, Rachel went back to work for Knowles at Three Peak Ranch in Wyoming. She saw Mauricio sporadically, but it was clear there would be no getting back together. Rachel slowly regained her physical strength, but any continued contact with her former husband still left her pretty shaken. And I decided it's time to get back in my body, so I started to run in the sage there. After a few weeks of training, she joined a friend for a 30-mile running traverse across the Wind River Range. They started from a trailhead off the muddy speedway and ran through the mountains to a pass in Sinks Canyon. I was like, well, I don't know if I can do this, but I'm going to try. And it was the first time since I'd given birth that, like, I felt that euphoria again. Like, I'm in my body, just giving it everything. And I remember just, like, running with a lot of milk in my breast. It was so painful. Like, it was like finding an old friend, you know? Like, there I am. Okay. And it wasn't about racing at this point. I didn't race. It was just to feel that connection again and that strength coming back. She landed a job in Missoula working for the university and charged into her new life with Augustine. She ran, sport climbed, and started mountain biking. She'd hire a babysitter to watch Augustine while she explored the mountains around her home. Mountain biking became the new laser beam focus, and that was an amazing outlet for me. That backcountry skiing in my 20s is the thing that came closest to it. I just became completely crazy for it. <laughs> and would have, yeah, a sitter while I went and did these pretty... I don't perceive them as dangerous, but probably the average person was like, that's pretty out there. <laughs> Being a single mom and, like, riding really, really hard with the full-face helmet and, like, flying down mountains. <laughs> or doing, like, nine-hour traverses of the, the mountains. I don't know. It was just what I needed. People in Rachel's community would ask her about her activities and the vigor with which she chased after them. And then they would ask, don't you think about your kid? What if something happened to you, especially because you don't have family around or his father? And talking to other moms, they're like, if I try and ski like I did, I think about my kid and I can't do it. It's just not that way for me. I'm like, no, this is this is who I am. I'm going to make it happen psychologically. Just like, I am going to continue to keep this commitment to myself, not out of like blindness of like, I must do this, but just this can't die. This can't go dormant because that, what would be left, you know? She did know what would be left. She'd been there before. For Rachel, it wasn't worth it to lose herself again. 
So with my decisions around self-care and single parenting, it's a very personal decision. And so I think moms need to do what they, you know, they need to identify what nourishes them and do those things. And so for me, that happens to be outdoor activities that some might deem risky. Looking back, I think those were good decisions. I wouldn't change a thing there. I think it was smart and healthy. Along with pursuing her own adventures through Augustine's childhood, Rachel also immersed her son into nature. They'd camp, hike, ski, look at animals through binoculars, and watch plants poke up through the snow in spring. When Rachel went out on her own intensely athletic activities, she pursued that feeling we all crave, the complete focus of -of out-of-breath, heart-pumping adventure. And now with him, it's not that way. If we go out and we're just going to go a mile and look at some tracks or just see a bug, it's whatever's right in front of it. It's very plain, and, and I love it. And I don't need to get to the thing. There's not like a little piece of cheese, like a mouse I'm chasing. It's just him, like watching him be curious, watching him wonder, listening to him like hum. That's one thing is just so I love about being out with him. He's always humming. It's just the two of us together are enough. So he's changed my perspective on things don't have to be big and bold to be really special. And I think this moment is all we've got. And so it's beautiful just because it exists instead of, look, I just did this traverse or I just felt that adrenaline or this or that. So I guess that's a transformation. Rachel and Gus, as she calls him now, have moved back to Alaska. Gus sees his father every couple of years, but by and large, Rachel's a single parent. She now works in Anchorage as the Bristol Bay Campaign Coordinator, and Gus turned eight last year. They continue to explore the outdoors together, and Rachel pursues her independent activities in the backcountry as well. As the years freeze and melt with each turn of the sun, Rachel notices an inner conflict. I want to get back into certain shape. I want to race again. I, you know, trained for skiing a little bit last year and got like fourth in the Tour of Anchorage 40K. I'm like, I want to win it. There's these little inner pulls, you know, like, what's my potential? And then there's this more overwhelming part of me. It's like, oh my God, he's eight. I have just a little amount of time left of this magic stage. Like he's going to lose that, the magical realism in a year or two and then realizes mom's not the coolest person to hang out with. And <laughs> so I have to kind of contend with that, what my boyfriend calls the, the inner border collie <laughs> and figure out how to, to balance it all. <laughs> A decade ago, Rachel tested the limits of her body and mind by skinning up big mountains and connecting with herself in the Alaskan wild. And though she still delights in pushing her edge in the backcountry, adventure has come to mean something different with Augustine in her life. Figuring out how to support and nurture him and his existence is the biggest adventure I've ever had. As he grows more independent and shows me his true colors and expresses himself in his own way. The feelings of excitement and satisfaction and bliss that I got from being in my own body in the mountains can also happen in a similar way with watching him just go down a a small (laughs) snowdrift because he's from me. And so all my experiences, whether I wish I would have taken a right turn when I took a left or stayed put when I moved or 
moved when I should have stayed put, all that's irrelevant because all those experiences and all that strength and kind of base building my whole life culminated into creating a human who's now a beautiful, strong, creative, funny, blissful little boy. Thank you, Rachel, for sharing your story. We really appreciate it. Music today from John Barry, Kai Engel, Kim Christensen, and Brendan O'Connell. The tracks are courtesy of Free Music Archive or the artists themselves. Jacob Bain and Mies Koto composed our theme song. You can find the links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by Cordelia Zars, Becca Cahal, and me, Fitz Cahal. You've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Stay safe out there, and thanks for tuning in.